Over this past month, we've been looking at some of the images of the church, the pictures of the church. Today is our third Sunday of considering the body of Christ. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's reconsider those verses that were read at the beginning of our service. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul begins this section with an appeal to believers to walk, to conduct ourselves according to who we are. We are God's people. We are born-again people. To conduct ourselves according to what we say we believe. Are we walking in humility? Are we walking in gentleness? Are we walking in patience? Are we bearing with one another in love? And then beginning in verse 4, he, he lists seven unifiers. He says all of us are unified by these seven things. He says there's one body... There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who immerses us into the body of Christ when we're saved. There's one hope. There's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God. We don't have to look for unity. We are unity. We have been unified by these seven unifiers. In fact, the issue isn't striving to look for unity or make unity happen. In verse 3, it says that we have to be eager to maintain this unity. I like the New American Standard here. It says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So I want to share three simple commands with you this morning from the New Testament as we consider that we're a part of this invisible, worldwide, we could even say mystical, body of Jesus, the body of which Jesus Christ is the head. Three simple commands. The first one's found in Hebrews 13, so I invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 13. There are a number of times the people of God are told to remember, especially in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, over and over and over, the Israelites are told to remember. To remember God, to remember he's one God, to remember uh, the law, to remember because they were so quick to forget. And by the way, we too are quick to forget. And in the New Testament, that word appears often. Uh, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells him to remember both his humanity and his deity. Jesus himself says, remember me when you partake of the bread and the cup, which we'll be doing in a little while. 
Earlier in Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you. The word remember is not a passive word in the Greek. Uh, It's not just having a passing thought. The, The thought that we have to bring something to mind is to drive us to action. That's what remember means. Not just a thought, but it drives us to do something. So in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3, there's a remember. I want us to look at it as it concerns the body of Christ. The writer to Hebrews says this, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And now it's getting kind of personal. Remember in such a way that you're identifying with their suffering. You're actually visualizing that you're there with them in whatever they're dealing with. You're in prison with them and remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We're told to remember two things. First, the prisoners. Now, I know that prison ministries might use this verse kind of as a, as a main, you know, their main uh, motto. Uh, but I don't think this is talking about all prisoners who are, have been in, imprisoned. Uh, We know this as we turn back a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 10. So let's look at Hebrews 10, verse 32. What's, What's this guy talking about? Who are the prisoners? Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days. In other words, here he's telling them to remember something. They've, they've forgotten the former days when you were enlightened, after you were enlightened, after you came to know Christ. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's talking about persecution. Persecution that came upon them for their faith. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Some of the believers who would go, I mean, do you remember how the apostles hid themselves in the upper room after Jesus was crucified? Uh, folks uh, worldwide, when, when Christianity is a, such a minority religion, they're often persecuted by those in the majority religion or those of no religion. And so Christians are often kind of hiding out, but these, these guys, they wanted to go and, and, and minister to their brothers and sisters who'd been arrested, who were being tortured, and so they would go and, and visit and out themselves, and then suddenly the persecution would come upon them. Some of them lost their possessions, they lost their homes as a result of identifying with brothers and sisters in Christ who were being persecuted, rather than remaining in hiding. And now it's, it's like they forgot that. This, this, this new generation, or perhaps a few years had gone by and they weren't doing it anymore. He's saying, remember, remember the prisoners. Don't go on with life like there's no big deal. Your own brothers and sisters are suffering. And then he talks about others who perhaps weren't in prison, but who were being oppressed, who were suffering. They were being ill-treated. And then he doesn't just issue the command, he tells them why. Why? Because you're in the body. You're in the same body. 
How can you forget? These folks are your brothers and sisters. One commentator writes, be so touched as if the misery were yours. I call this voluntary suffering. That's the name of the, the sermon today. Who would volunteer to suffer? We're all called to, to, to suffer. To enter into suffering voluntarily. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. How many countries in the world do you think there is uh, a restriction of Christian freedom? Uh, one out of ten countries? One out of five countries or one out of three countries? I want you to answer that question. One out of three, correct. One out of three countries. In 64 countries, people, Christians can't gather like we're gathered here. One out of three. That's 70% of the world's population. You say, how can that be? Well, think of India and China. That's over 2 billion people right there. Folks don't have an opportunity to gather like we do. Or if they do, they know at any time people can come rushing in with stones or set this building on fire. By God's grace, we don't have that fear here, but most of our brothers and sisters around the world do. Another question, how many Christians do you think have been martyred, have been murdered for their faith since Jesus spoke the words I'm about to share with you from John chapter 15? He said to his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates, hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Okay, Jesus spoke those words of warning to his church. Since he spoke those words, how many Christians have spilled their blood to the point of death? Would you say 20 million? 50 million or 70 million? You know that the answer is going to be the biggest number, right? 70 million. About half of these have been in the last 100 years. Many in our own lifetimes, because now is one of the worst times in all of history for persecution against our own brothers and sisters. So the question is this. Is it okay just to kind of shrug our shoulders and say, what's the big deal? We have freedom here. I'm sure glad we're not in trouble and act like it doesn't really matter to us. It's not going to affect my life. No, Hebrews says, remember, we are in the same body. Voluntary suffering. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians 12, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at uh, the body in 1 Corinthians 12, I stopped short of finishing that text. And it's a good thing because I want to deal with those last couple verses in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 25. This is leading us to the second point, the second command. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 25. Paul says there should be no division in the body, 
the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. That's voluntary suffering. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, usually when we read these verses, when we read the one anothering verses, we think of the, what's called the local assembly. We're, we're this small, small, very small portion part of the body, aren't we? The body of Christ that's worldwide. And so rightly, we start with our own people. We know the faces. We know the names. We worship side by side. That's good and right, but that's not where we stop. Because when we see these verses about the body of Christ, we think of the, we're to think of the whole body of Christ. I love you as my brothers and sisters. You're not the only brothers and sisters I have. Right? Same for you. Even on the day of Pentecost, think about the timing of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon those 120. We call that the birthday of the church. Who was there? Who was there that day who would come into the preaching of Peter and have, what was it, 5,000 people? Who was there? Think about who was there. Acts chapter 2 says this. These people were gathered in Jerusalem. They were Jews who had come on the day of Pentecost to celebrate the feast. Parthians, those are Iranians, by the way, and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Fifteen different people groups, probably more people groups, but from these different countries had been assembled. They would come under the hearing of the gospel. And as far as we know, there were representatives from each of these who were saved. The body of Christ, suddenly it's not just these guys from Galilee, a couple from Judea. Suddenly the body of Christ is, is worldwide. People speaking different languages, different colors. I love the providential working of God, the timing of him pouring out his spirit on that day. He didn't have to do that. He loves the people of the world. He wants them to know him. So the second command, as we see here in chapter 12 and verse 25, it says that we are to have the same care for one another. Not just those within the walls of this fellowship, but our brothers and sisters around the world. Have the same care. We're to have the same care for our brothers and sisters that we know are imprisoned in North Korea for their faith. So we pray for them. I've never met them. I don't know them. I don't know them by name. But God hears my prayer, and God works in conjunction with our prayers. And he cares deeply for his children who are suffering around their world for their faith. If one member suffers, all members suffer. Voluntary suffering. Just as our human bodies are interconnected, we feel the pain. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, slam a hammer down on your finger, and it's going to feel like your whole body hurts. 
those nerves are just going to be sending, sending messages to your whole body. Likewise, we're called to share the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Now, it's really easy to write that down as a command, so I wonder if Paul really practiced what he preached. What do you think the answer to that is? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. A little bit of background as you're turning there. It was about 60 AD, and the, the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Judea, Israel were in deep trouble. Not only were they facing persecution, but they were bearing the brunt of a terrible economic crisis that was sweeping that part of the world. And then a drought hit. Many lost their jobs. They lost their homes. Unable to find work, they only had one place to go, the throne of grace. And they prayed, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but we need food. My kids need clothes. We need water. So how's God going to answer that prayer? It's not just one or two people. This is a huge number of Jewish Christians who are suffering. How's God going to answer prayer like that? He could send manna. He only did that once. I don't think he's going to do that again. He could, but I don't think he will. But he does answer prayers in another way. He puts burdens on his people. He puts burdens on the church in one part of the world to help brothers and sisters in another part of the world. He put a burden on the Apostle Paul. Concerned and burdened for his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and Judea, Paul shared the plight with Gentile churches that he was planting and discipling on his missionary journeys. We just think that only, only evangelism was, was driving Paul to go for, to all these places, but he was also sharing this, these needs with new believers saying, hey, do you know that you can come to the aid? You guys have money. They have nothing. And he took offerings that, would, that he would then take back to Jewish Christians. So missions is more than evangelizing the lost. It's also discipling the found. It's also training leaders. It's multiplying and planting new churches. But it also includes something else. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. As Paul is going to come back to Corinth. Corinth, by the way, was an extremely wealthy city and extremely wealthy church. They had lots of money. So he let them know that I'm going to be taking an offering there, and he lets them know ahead of time, when I come, I expect that you guys will be ready to give. He says in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. That's just a spiritual principle. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I know churches use that and they're going to take offerings for their own needs. This isn't the context here. The context is about others in other parts of the world. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he quotes from Psalm 112, as it is written, he, by the way, the he there isn't God. The he there is the righteous man that the Psalm 112 is about. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
now that he is God, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is as they give to others who are suffering. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, these folks are going to overflow with thanksgiving as they receive. This, it's not just money, it's, it's water, it's food that they're going to be able to keep their children fed. Verse 12, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Missions is also about relationship. Mutual ministry. People investing and pouring into one another. Paul reminds the Corinthians they're offering, yes, it will supply needs. It will result in praise to God. And the result is those folks are going to long to meet you. Now, this is before the days of airplanes and people being able to travel easily. And if you don't get to meet these folks that we're helping here in this lifetime, we're going to see them in heaven. And they're going to come up to you and they're going to say, thank you. Thank you for coming to my aid. How will they know? They'll know. They'll know. There's going to be such a time of praise and thanksgiving eternally in the new heavens and new earth. They will long to see you, he says, and to pray for you. Mutual ministry results. Many of you know that in 2011, when I was still on pastoral staff here, I had the opportunity to join a few other pastors to go on a ministry trip to India and Myanmar where we would have pastor conferences for under-resourced pastors. I found out that one of the areas that I was visiting would be the eastern state of Orissa, also known as Odisha, where great persecution had taken place in 2008, three years earlier. Mobs of Hindus had attacked church buildings, burned them to the ground, burnt down Christians' homes, killed a number of Christians. Many pastors, over 400 villages, were attacked. At least 200 believers were killed. And for one week, as I met with 40 pastors who had lost everything, they lost their church buildings, their homes, family members. Many had pastor friends who had been murdered. And God knit our hearts together. And uh, it changed my life to hear their stories and to meet the widows. And many of you know what happened. I came back, started telling the story, and you knew that it wouldn't be long. The day was out of here. Because God knit my heart with those men in such a way that, and as I met the widows and heard their stories, uh, I knew I couldn't just go back to life as it was in Florissant. And uh, it wasn't long after that that we uh, left the pastoral staff and raised some support and began doing work with Action International. And the past 10 years has been a, a wonderful time of ministering to my brothers and sisters there and in Myanmar where there's been such suffering. Uh, 
and it has been glorious. But I, I share this not that I get one iota of praise because uh, this is about Jesus and it's about what he longs for in the body of Christ worldwide. One of those nights after I had met the widows and uh, I couldn't sleep, I don't, I'm not sure I slept at all that night, I was thinking of Bible verses that somehow uh, would provide a, a framework for what I was beginning to think about uh, in being able to continue to serve. And uh, the Lord led me to 1 John chapter 3. And I invite you to turn. It gets us to this third command. And my life, uh, th this solidified that something had to change about my ministry. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 11. Very powerful words. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever, who, whoever, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, this is the verse that uh, God spoke to me so very clearly. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How can you hear that? How can you read that and not be affected? We look at Jesus. We praise Jesus. Jesus transforms us, and then Jesus says, I want you to be like me. Now, none of us is going to die for someone else's sins, but he's asking us to make sacrifices. He's not asking us literally to be, you know, to die. Yes, it might come to that, but that's not what laying down your life for your brother means. You only can do that once if we're spilling our blood to the point of death. It's talking about making these sacrifices for one another. Laying down your life for the brother's if anyone has the world's goods, I think all of us here probably do, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this third command to lay down our lives for the brethren what does it mean by laying down your life? What does it mean by, mean by closing your heart? We, we all know what it feels like to close our heart. You know, after empathizing with somebody so deeply, it really, it really weighs you down. I think some people, uh, they, they die an early death when you take someone else's suffering upon yourself, and you know what that feels like. You're, you're side by side with someone who's grieving, who's weeping. You're putting your arm around them. You're sitting with them for hours. You're praying for them. And then you don't forget about them as you walk away. You lose sleep over people. You check in with people. This is what shepherding is. This is what counseling is. It's empathizing. It's feeling. It takes a toll on us to keep abreast of the persecuted church around the world. 
and yet it's easily accessible to us. Some of you get the publication Voice of the Martyrs. Continue reading their monthly magazine. It's free. You can go online. You can order it. They'll send it to your house. There's another ministry called Barnabas Aid, and we become aware of that. They, their mission statement is to bring hope and aid to suffering Christians. They send out a bi-monthly prayer booklet, Barnabas Aid. Uh, so I've been using uh, the, the Barnabas Aid prayer uh, booklet, and I thought I had it with me, but I don't. But in, uh, just five days ago, they were talking about the refugees in the world. It says it's 82 million refugees and uh, IDPs, uh, which are, um, help me out, somebody, internally displaced peoples, thank you. Uh, folks who haven't been forced to leave their country, but they're away from their home. They're staying perhaps in a refugee camp. 82 million, you know, that's twice as many as after World War II. Uh, there's more refugees now than ever. What can we do to help? Well, we're about to help, aren't we? We, we are uh, welcoming uh, Vova and Genya and their uh, four children uh, here into uh, our homes, into our hearts. Uh, and here's a picture of them. The kids range between 15 and 9. And so uh, pray for them, get involved with their lives. But what can we do about the other that's not helping? What, there's still 81 million, and I'm going to try saying the number. <laughs> I recently heard about an old man who was walking on the beach at dawn. He noticed a young man ahead of him picking up starfish and, and flinging them into the sea. And he caught up with the young man. He said, what are you doing? And, and the guy says, well, these stranded starfish will die if they're left in the morning sun. And the old man said, the beach goes on for miles and miles and miles. There's millions of starfish. How can your effort make any difference? And the young man looked at the starfish in his hand and threw it to safety in the waves. And he said, it makes a difference to this one. We can make a difference to this one, to that one, to that one. So we have people around us who are in need. You can choose to get involved, and you can choose to harden your heart. That's why we call it voluntary suffering. If one member suffers, all members suffer together. To the church at Rome, Paul wrote, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and you know the rest of it. Weep with those who weep. Voluntary suffering. Like the priest in Levitical priest in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, we can cross over the road to the other side. What does love look like? Sacrificing your time rolling up your sleeves, getting involved. When the Exxon Valdez spilled thousands of gallons of crude oil along Alaska's shoreline, the company's president dismissed the suggestion that he should go and see the damage, implying that a trip all the way there would just be a waste of time. He had the power to do something, but he didn't have the goodness. He really didn't care. Paul Miller writes, what might it have done to his own heart had he gotten down in the muck and cleaned a few geese? 
Paul also writes, Jesus shows us how to love. You look, you feel, and then you help. Look at how Jesus interacts. You see that often. Jesus looked. He felt compassion in his heart, and then he did something. Paul Miller writes, if we help someone but don't take the time to look at the person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love is cold. And if we look and feel but don't do what we can to help, our love is cheap. Love does both. John tells us what love looks like. He says about Jesus, here's how we know love. He laid down his life for us. Jesus looked at us, he felt, he felt compassion for us, and he laid down his life for us. As we prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, uh, we remember what he has done for us to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us to his body worldwide.